Congress has something new and critical to deal with every week, it seems. However, it deals with the budget, the need to authorize a few agencies like the Defense Department, or with the White House request for foreign military aid, it needs both chambers to be functioning. We get the latest now from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, the only thing I can think of with these votes happening for Jim Jordan is the old Paul Simon song, the nearer your destination, the more you keep slip sliding away. <laughs> yes, and unfortunately for Jim Jordan, he keeps slip sliding away. And it's really just an unprecedented situation you have here where you have a political party unable to choose its own leader. There's just no one within the Republican Party right now that can get 217 votes. And it's just brought paralysis to the U.S. House of Representatives. And of course, that means implications for all kinds of things across government. And right now, there are a lot of people really, really worried about the institution. There must be some emergency way if they, for example, wanted to take up legislation that the president requested last week, which is more than $100 billion in continued foreign military aid. There's got to be a way with a temporary speaker or pro tempore speaker. Can they vote on that if they have to? Well, it's really interesting that you ask that because this was a big part of the argument this past week, and it, it continues to be one. And basically, the situation is that a lot of people have said, why can't you make House Speaker pro tem Patrick McHenry, who was brought in after the ouster of former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, kind of an ally of McCarthy, brought in and essentially was a caretaker, a lot of people thought, gavels in the House and then, of course, gavels it into recess. But many people, including Kevin McCarthy, himself have said that after 9-11, that there really was no need to pass specific legislation to give some powers to this pro tem. But there are sharp disagreements, even among scholars and parliamentarians, about that point of view. Some people say that it might even be unconstitutional to give the pro tem more power. Now, interestingly, Patrick McHenry himself is an institutionalist. And even though there were a lot of people last week that wanted him to become this caretaker uh, speaker, he himself has been really reticent to move into that mode. But a lot of people say, look, if the Republican Party can't agree on anyone, surely we must, as you point out, do something so that some legislation or some emergency action can be taken. So there's a real back and forth over this. And this was actually what caused a revolt last week against Jim Jordan. He was ready to do this. He was ready to allow this to happen. But a lot of the hardliners within the Republican Party said absolutely not. They were viscerally opposed to this. They thought it was basically a variety of things. Some of them thought it was giving over power to the Democrats in some way by making a compromised government. Others had these legal arguments. So it's a very, very interesting thing, even though it might seem arcane on the surface. It's something that goes right to the core of what the House can or cannot do. And have you noticed or witnessed or maybe just monitored any international reaction to this? Because it must make us look like a little bit of a laughingstock, I think, in some places. You know, it's really interesting. There is a large amount of people around the world looking at this. In fact, it was reported last week that even during President Biden's visit, short as it was to Israel, he was asked about this by Israeli officials. They said, what is going on with this part of your U.S. government? So they are very, very aware 
aware of what's happening. And it's really a sore point for many of the Republicans that work on committees such as foreign affairs, like the chair, uh, Michael McCall, and intelligence. A lot of these people have said very openly that they think that this is making the U.S. look like a laughingstock to the rest of the world. You know, as Michael McCall said, the world is burning, literally, and we are not doing anything about it. You've had weeks without a House speaker, even as these major crises have been unfolding, obviously, Israel and Hamas and earlier Ukraine, but that is still going on now. And they just really are pulling their hair out, frankly. There's been a lot of tension within the Republican conference, probably more so than ever before. These closed-door meetings, they call them family meetings. Boy, this is a dysfunctional family right now. (laughs) Yes, the whips are out. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller. He's Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. And besides the world burning, the government itself is inching ever closer. It's like the tied-up damsel going down the proverbial sawmill. The blade gets closer and closer to the federal shutdown date of November 17th and the National Defense Authorization Act. Right, which is usually a no-brainer. Everybody thought that that was going to pass very quickly, and now that is stuck. So you have all these issues related to the military, not to mention the fact that we do have this international crisis going on, and then that big buzzsaw is just getting closer and closer. It's hard to believe that it's actually within weeks now that that November 17th government shutdown deadline is approaching, and it seemed like such a long time ago when they finally got through it, but ironically, it was the agreement between Democrats and Republicans to compromise on that that kicked, essentially, Kevin McCarthy out of the post of House Speaker. And now you've had really what is chaos and a crisis in the U.S. House of Representatives because there is absolutely no legislation that can move forward. Of course, a lot of House Republicans were talking about they were going to take up all these individual appropriations bills over the last few weeks. Well, obviously, those weeks are totally gone now. They are lost. There's no more time for that. And then there's just the question of what's going to happen as we get closer to the deadline. Are we still going to be in this limbo? Are we going to know who is actually the titular head of the Republican Party in the U.S. House? And that has obviously a lot of implications for what's going to happen with the shutdown. I think there is a resignation among many lawmakers, at least right now, that a shutdown may be coming. All right. And you also spoke to Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, getting back to the White House aid package. What are some of the Senate Democrat majority parties thinking about that? Well, the Democrats and the Senate in general have just tried to keep their head down and keep working. And so they are pushing ahead with a variety of things in connection with aid to Israel. And then Senator Kane, I asked him about this huge supplemental request that's coming out from the White House, over $100 billion, which of course includes billions of dollars for Israel, as well as Ukraine, as well as the southern border, which has been a big push by the Republicans. He does believe that eventually some form of that supplemental will get through Congress. Now, obviously, he's well aware of what's happening on the other side of the Capitol, but he says that basically it's the Senate that has to take the ball here and really make sure that it starts moving on this and getting it through Congress. And so Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Friday again reiterated that point and said the Senate is going to keep pushing ahead, trying to at least get things in place so that at some point, whenever the House gets its act together, that this can actually be passed. Now, that certainly doesn't mean that it's going to roll right through. As we've talked about before, there are many House Republicans who have a lot of reservations about more aid to Ukraine, and they don't like the idea of Ukraine and Israel aid being tied together. But we'll have to see what happens there, because right now we just have a power vacuum here in the U.S. House. 
Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. 
we're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. 
And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has 
been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.